Well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your provision of so much to us, not just in our physical lives and our political circumstances, but uh, at the nature of ourselves, the root of our existence. We'd ask that you would continue to build that up, that no matter what we encounter, we would be strong souls for your kingdom. In your son's name, amen. We're in John, Gospel of St. John, chapter 5. I don't know if it was merely being in John last week that reminds you, we're in John 1 and John 12 and John 8, reminds you of how good John is in terms of a bit of rich thinking about the Christ, of what the Christ says in circumstances. It's very condensed spirituality. And there's a situation in John 5 um, it's one of those weird situations that we don't fully understand what's going on. It says, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Hebrew called Bezatha or some translations say uh, Bethesda, which has five porticos. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew that he'd been lying there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? It's a really bizarre circumstance. One, because some of your Bibles, if you're reading out of a different translation than I just read, adds at the end of verse 3, waiting for a moving of the waters, where it says paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now you probably remember that story because if you grew up with the King James, it's in the King James. It doesn't occur in the earliest manuscripts. That's why a number of other more modern translations will not have that phrase. Not saying that it isn't true, but it might not be originally what was written by John. That being, you're, 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 you, you can call it as you see it. Obviously, there was a point to sick people hanging around the pool, and perhaps some later scribe wanted to inform you as to what was going on, what was being uh, believed as people, multitudes of sick people hung, hanging out by a pool of water, trying to get in it rapidly whenever it was troubled. Um, there had to be some reason. Um, but that is, in case you felt confused by the absence of that phrase, that's why. Now, the other things that are floating in our circumstance, no pun intended, um, we're not sure whether the sheep gate or the sheep market. Uh, there's a suggestion that the sheep gate was on the eastern side of the city at the time of Christ, up above where the temple was located. So that the pool of Bethsaida, they, they think they have that located just north of the temple complex. Um, and so the sheep gate, if it's a gate, if it's the sheep gate they're talking about, uh, 
that's where they think it was. I have the passage in Nehemiah 3, then Eliashib, the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanael. Okay? That's the building of the sheep gate back at the time of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So we know there was a sheep gate. The question is whether the John passage is referring to that. But that well, whatever the case, you've got this multiple pooled circumstance with porticos, which are colonnades, open but roofed, um, in, you know, uh, patios, basically. Um, uh, what are they called? In? Gazebos, but in a line. You know, you'd have these uh, classical columns uh, and then a roof over it, uh, where in the temple, the porticos, the royal portico and the Solomon's portico were used by rabbis as teaching venues. Uh, the porticos in Athens were used by the philosophers, and that's where the Stoics get their name. The Stoics come from the Stoa, which was the portico of the marketplace. Um, so, if you ever saw the cartoon Hercules by Disney, he knocks down a portico at the beginning when he is going through puberty. And it goes down like a bunch of dominoes, and it's kind of sad. But I uh, always wanted one of these in my yard. You know, go around the edge, a walking area covered for the rainy weather. So you have these porticos and a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed people, all waiting for the water to be troubled and then to be the first one in. Now what's interesting is that Jesus has come down for the festival, whatever, it doesn't say which festival it is, but uh, has come down from Galilee to Jerusalem and he ends up at the pool of Bethsaida and you know he could heal the multitude, but he doesn't heal the multitude. He's not looking at are you sick or not, his mercy goes out to this guy because Jesus knew he'd been lying there a long time. His heart went out to him, you would say, because after, we don't know if he'd been there all 38 years of his illness, but he'd been there a long enough time and the nature of his illness, it seems like he was um, lame in some regard because he was not rapid enough in his efforts to get into the water. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is troubled, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Kind of a the Americans with Disabilities Act would require, of course, that everybody be dumped in the pool at the same time so the angel couldn't sort it out and just heal everybody. But Christ comes into the situation with a, uh, a limited choice. He doesn't heal the rest of the people at Bethsaida. He's not really there to be found, you know, uh, show off either. He's got, you know, this, this guy who doesn't know who he is. There's no interchange. Hi, I'm Jesus Christ, Son of God. He just says to him, verse 8, Rise, take up your pallet, and walk. 
Now that was probably the worst thing that could possibly happen. Because you start with this very day-to-day life in ancient Jerusalem sort of moment. You got this place in the city where sick people go to try to get healed by some sort of action of the water. Maybe angelic involvement. Jesus wanders in, unknown to anybody that it's Jesus. Picks out one guy because he's been there a long time. And asks him if he wants to be healed. And then heals him without any exchange of any kind of belief or faith. Just heals him. And tells him to pick up his sleeping bag, take it home. At once the man was healed, and he took up his pallet and walked. Key moment. Now that day was the Sabbath. This moment, this sort of slice of life of Jesus Christ into kind of what what did Jesus do on his day off when nobody's following him, nobody's looking at him, nobody's telling him, nobody's asking him questions, nobody knows who he is. He just goes out there and does a kindness to a guy that he felt the time issue about this, about this man. And he steps into it. By the time you get, this is verse 8, verse 9, 20 verses later, everything about Jesus Christ is declared. It's, it's like falling off a, a, a hillside and you're just picking up steam and the avalanche is increasing from a small little thing. Because what he did, the mistake Jesus made is to heal this guy on the Sabbath. Because if you can imagine, um, I don't know if you've ever been in really religious towns um, or been someplace that still has blue laws, um, or strong Sabbath sensitivities and nothing's happening. It's a, it's a Sunday and you want to go out and do something and nothing's open. Nothing. That's the way a lot of us back in the Wayback Machine grew up. Stuff didn't happen on Sunday. And now you go to the mall, everything's open. Can you still buy booze? Is it, is it, I mean, liquor on Sunday? I don't Stop by the liquor store on the way home. See. A lot of places you couldn't, can't get a drink, can't do anything. Now, can you imagine Jerusalem? It's Saturday, because that's the Sabbath. Saturday's the Sabbath. There's going to be a different tone of life on the street. It might be busy, it might be quiet, but nobody's doing anything. Even the probably the less religious is just to go along to get along. Because obviously anybody, this guy's carrying his sleeping bag home. But it's like one of those moments you see this quiet crowd, nobody accomplishing anything, people milling about, chatting in their Sabbath best. And then some guy carrying his stuff. In the middle of the crowd. You could see him from a mile away because that sleeping bag stuck up above his head. And he's walking at home. 
It's against the rules. I don't know if you knew that, but he, he was violating working on the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your pallet. The cops pulled him over. Religious town. But he answered them, the man who healed me said to me, take up your pallet and walk. I, somebody told me to do this. I don't know who it is, but someone told me to do this. And he had healed me. I thought it was incumbent upon me to do what he said. They were just told that this guy was healed, but they cannot get their minds off this Sabbath infraction. But they know, because they are just men, they know that it's really the fault of the guy who told them to do it. Let's go find him. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? I mean, they're out there trying to miss the point. Trying to miss the point. Do you ever think that about Christians? I think about it about Christians all the time. I read too much about Christians on the web. Where Christians are out there missing the point of the life. How you can act to others with the degree of malice and nastiness and and hold it, aren't there actual verses that tell you don't do that? And they do it. Because they're out to miss the point. Their religion has stepped in the way of something manifest. Jesus starts small. Remember, it's a slice of life, daily moment. Nobody's following him. He's not teaching anybody. Nobody knows who he is. He picks out one guy because he feels sorry because he's been over there a while. and He might as well fix him. The other guys can wait till they make it in the pool. But I'm going to say, this guy just has a hard time getting in the pool. And he's been here years. I'll just fix that and walk away. And they're going to miss the point. Because they're going to see it. Oh, oh, see, oh, you were healed. Okay, fine. But who told you to carry your sleeping bag? Now the man who'd been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. It wasn't one of those, wowzers, who are you? There's a milling about, lots of sick people, lots of people in pain, a lot of, you know, guy fixes one guy and never got introduced. He's just doing what he was told. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse befall you. It's one of those confident phrases of not great import, but Jesus just dealing with, yeah, he didn't know he knew this guy, but he runs into him in the temple. Oh, we recognize each other. Oh, yeah, didn't I heal you earlier? You're healed. Now remember that. Don't be evil. You don't want bad things. You didn't deserve the healing. The healing is a gift. It's not a debt. 
As soon as you start thinking about the multitude at Bethsaida, that he didn't heal as if he was supposed to because he healed the one guy, you've forgotten that it's not a debt. It was a gift. What is our debt? We don't, we don't want to suddenly have everything really be fair. We think so. We always think of fair. We always think of, um, of well, that, you know, I should be allowed to have that too because they were given that. If you don't give it to me, say, really, first off, you really want this to be absolutely just? The phrase, sin no more, that nothing, nothing worse happened to you. Because if you really want payout for what is deserved, if you want to say that certain things are deserved and they must be paid, you might want to consider what God would do to you if he got his hands on you. If he said, yeah, what do I think of you? You always are very alert to, oh, somebody won the lottery. How come I didn't win the lottery? Shouldn't I win the lottery too? Shouldn't everybody get this benefit back? If things are just. Treat the gifts as gifts and understand that you might want to watch out for things that are deserved. What do you deserve? Far worse than we're getting. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. He, as soon as he found out, hey, you, some guys wanted to know who you were. They asked me earlier, I didn't know. I'm going to go tell them that. And this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus, because he did this on the Sabbath. Missing the point. Not just, <coughs> not just Jesus in this moment, going from a moment of kindness, escalating in knowledge of who he is and who he claims to be, and you're going to see who he claims to be and how he claims it. <clears throat> but we are also escalating who we are in every circumstance. This cluelessness, this missing the point. Are we like these Jews who in start insisting that the way you perceive spiritual things is the way it must be perceived. I was meditating on, well, recently there's been a number of Christian, well, so-called leaders, famous people representing great things of Jesus, the kingdom, who have fallen deservedly on hard times, where they had to resign admit error, admit sin, step down from their ministries. And I couldn't be more relieved because celebrity pastors are just a bit of God help us. But there's a reason we have them. Well, one, we're a celebrity culture and the Christians want a celebrity pastor. I don't want to lose weight, so I don't want to become a celebrity pastor. Can't. You can only do so much with Photoshop. I could be thin with Photoshop, but 
What is happening with these celebrities? Because at the same time, Christ is going to be declared and declare himself, the tumble-down effect, the avalanche into who Christ is, is matched with the avalanche of who we are. We start with just a small objection to the theological underpinnings of somebody carrying his sleeping bag on the Sabbath. Because it's forbidden. And he says, well, this guy told me. He goes, who's the guy? I don't know. I'll go find out. He goes, find out, tells them. And they decided to persecute Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath. They moved from disagreeing with the guy carrying the sleeping bag to persecution of the guy who suggested it in the midst of a miracle. Who they are is also declared. But Jesus answered them. And this is an interesting phrase. My father is working still, and I am working. What's the basis of the Sabbath? God rested from all of his labors. So Jesus said, ah, well, that's very nice, but God's still working, and so am I. We're not, they had turned the Sabbath into an obligation that even the living God had to obey. If God didn't stop working, he would be wrong. But Christ introduces his own matchup, my father and I am both working. Notice in verse 16 it says, and this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus. When he says, the Father is working still and I am working, then verse 18 he says, this is why the Jews sought all the more to kill him. It's a, the, the tumbling down this hillside, Jesus is tumbling down into great declarations of who he is, the deity of Jesus Christ, and they are tumbling down into something altogether different, a very religious, what's the, the definition um, in Christian's, circles in Corinthians 13 of love, one of the central elements is love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. And that is precisely what celebrity pastors get in trouble about. Different mutations of that thing, but what you have are kingdoms, fiefdoms, that are centered, even named for the celebrity. Something great has been given to them. All of your identities, you've heard me say this before, all of your identities are developed about yourself, about how far your will extends. That's how you know who you are. How far does my will extend? Well, celebrities, powerful people, political leaders, conquerors, famous pastors, have been handed a huge degree of will extension. And that hangs out in front of them like a way that they must insist on. And the word insist, I was meditating, I wrote it down on a post-it note this morning, insist. What, at some point, you either continue to insist or you stop insisting. If you continue to insist, you will take it all the way up to 
hurting someone physically. Putin has invaded the Crimea, and we got this feeling that Putin is going to insist. And we have an equal feeling that our president is not going to insist about anything. We know the difference between insisting on your own way and those who don't insist. The loving do not insist on their own way, but the temptation of power, the temptation of your way already be fe being featured largely, it's what every father has to conquer when his daughter gets married. Because he used to be able to insist on his own way around that person. And now some other guy is going to insist. Too bad. You gotta, when you says, give your daughter away, I mean, that's all that Tim has to look forward to. He's got two daughters. He gets to give them away. I get to give away half my family. It's a big deal. I have three sons, so I'm just out conquering. We're getting people. Naming them Wilson. We don't like losing power. And the Jews didn't like losing power, and they were going to insist, first, that it was the Sabbath, you don't carry sleeping bags. We'll persecute you because of that. Then he says, they sought all the more to kill him in verse 18, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his Father, making himself equal with God. They understood the rules of their way. The problem is not that they had strong opinions, but they were going to insist on them. That's what a border functions as. Why do we talk about amnesty in political circles? I don't know what your views are on that. The church doesn't have a position, but some people are concerned about illegal aliens coming into our country. You don't maintain your border security. Is that, that could cost us our 501c3. I didn't express an opinion. We know that all of us are little kingdoms. And love would have you not insist on your own way, but self wants you to insist on your own way. And the problem is, in John 5, someone has shown up that denies you the right to insist on your own way, let alone even have your own way. Because that's the, the, the insistence becomes a shriek of intense, I'm going to kill you. Are we capable of this? Oh, you bet. That's the worst possible thing that could happen to the United States of America, that a Christian who would be elected to be the presidency and Christian things started being done by the Congress. That would be the worst. Because those people know how to insist. And Christians, religious people, love to insist all the way to killing others. Because it's so important that you maintain the Sabbath. So important. But Jesus Christ himself is an insistence. I am working, my father is working, 
And he was happy to let that claim of equality with God ride. And then Jesus said to them, verse 19, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. The problem with insistent people. You're out there defining yourself by how far your will goes, and as you feel the threat of more powerful kingdoms coming toward you, be it another human being who's got a better argument than you, someone who's got more money than you in business, someone who's going to outdo you, smarter, better looking than you, whatever it is, you're getting defeated. And so as you are a self-loving, selfish person, you will try to insist on your way and your control. You will find yourself going to war, socially, physically, actually going to war, because you, as it says in James, um, the war of your passions in your members drives you to war. And so there is this self that finds the, the I, I'm thinking of Jesus knocking you into the cheap seats, because he stepped into your world in a casual moment that just escalated, and he's now coming down and saying, you know, I mirror God. I am loved by God. I am trained by God. I've been given power over life by God. I've been given the judgment by God. In other words, there is a will, that of God, that by definition is higher than yours. And when someone is devoted to their own will, their own way, their own right religion, you say, what the Sabbath is, something that was, I don't care. These guys were following God's law about the Sabbath, and they were somehow trying to beat up and kill Jesus Christ on the basis of it. So we know that, I don't care, again, what your view is, that you are getting all so hissy-fitting about is you are a selfish person if you insist. But I'm defending, I don't care. If you insist, I love the example, I was talking last night to the Hagans about R.C. Chapman, uh, Plymouth Brethren pastor in the 1800s, just a, uh, one of those dear saints, powerful for his willingness to give in. Some group of, I guess, other Plymouth Brethren were made a claim on his church building. And so he and his church looked at the documents and they had a legitimate case to keep their building. It was more than likely theirs. So he gave it to the other guys. Said, okay, you want it that bad, go ahead. Knock yourself out. He wasn't about insisting. You might not agree that in every circumstance that would be the right way to go. But you're looking at you're going to have a kingdom that you're trying to run by your best religious lights, your best economic needs, your best 
advancements of you and your interests, and some days Jesus shows up and wants you to submit to him and submit to him in the way he wants you to behave towards others. Obviously, love is, you know, we represent that in All Souls Christian as the guide to all ethical behavior in Christ, in the New Covenant. Love. And it's defined as not insisting on your own way. Are there ever circumstances where your own way has come up and you didn't answer the insistence? Whenever you've got it so big in your life that an insistence is the way, insistence never stops. It will come to the level of violent war against someone, hanging someone on a cross. Christians have burned other Christians at the stake. And it's not because it's all that important what they said or did. They have burned non-Christians, they've burned other Christians. How do you get to that point? There isn't... Um, John Hill came up with a phrase yesterday, ambitions in sheep's clothing. It's a... Uh, uh, that's what's going on. Your ambitions about you dressed up as a Christian event, a Christian, a Christian task, Sabbath protection. No, it's just you policing your way. Now your problem here, you're either tumbling into an insistence where your way is going to have to ramp up more violence against your opposition, or you're going to submit yourself to the obvious Lord of, the, of, of, of life that has mirrored, been loved by God, trained by God, given power by God, given the judgment by God. That is going to get in your way. We're not all in this. We're not all in this, hoping that at the last day, like a, you think this is a game of risk, okay? Where I win because I got the most countries. I have conquered everybody. I have got all of Europe and all of Africa and all of South America, and you've got Newfoundland. <laughs> so, I think it works out that I win. He who dies with the most toys wins. It's not that. It's not a comparative measure at the end of your life or the end of the world as to who had the most, who defined himself the broader. It's a judgment. It's not merely add up the square miles. Now for me, in my world, I like philosophy, I like teaching the scriptures. So for me, all my conquest is that I convince them. One more person, check off, and I can claim them on the last day. How many people did I convince? 32,000. Pretty impressive. We're going to be judged. It's a crisis. It's not... I have to decide that, verse 23, that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Because as you expand yourself 
and your interests and your insistence on your being uh, dominant over an area. Jesus Christ steps in and says, I am dominant, I am God, I am this, honor me, and you've got to decide whether you honor me. Be- at some point, that honor is going to be that breaking of the knee and you bow down. And you bow down to Jesus Christ or you don't. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You want a challenge to see how big yourself can get? God will enter your life at the end as judge. If you bow the knee, you do not come into judgment. You have joined the kingdom of God and Christ. But it's the kingdom of God and Christ. Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. As for, the fa- uh, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Go back up 20 verses and you have this unknown guy healing one guy out of a multitude of sick people because he'd been waiting a long time. And that bump of kindness ends up being a revelatory thing about the Jews, those who had decided to insist on certain things. And who Jesus Christ is. He is the judge. I am not the judge. I can walk away from any situation where somebody might want to take my, my ministry. He fell over at the pulpit. That's not good. I haven't been drinking. You say, well, who's going to want this? You know, who's this? Well, maybe if it grew. Maybe if somebody would want you. Do I have it in me? Did you say, well, yeah. It all belongs to God. I don't have to insist on it. Insisting. Of course, you've got to have the power to insist. I'll let God insist on his kingdom. Let God insist on his kingdom. He is the judge. He's going to raise everybody to to judgment. Everybody is going to die. Everyone's going to be brought before him. The question you have to answer is, have I been good? Because the good get the resurrection to life. Do you know what the good is? Do you know who has the judgment? What makes it good? You say, well, is that works righteousness? Have you checked who has the judgment and what is good to him? Obviously, honoring the Son and honoring the Father is good because that grants you eternal life as well. Faith in him is good. Because that's the big distinction. As you see the development of the Jews insisting on their way up to the point of killing the Christ and Jesus insisting on his way because he has the judgment, he's not proving anything. 
to himself. You're out there trying to buy into your insistence of how am I to prove who I am? He knows who he is. He's the image of his father. He is God. He's confident about it. It's not a challenge with the Jews who could be more important. He's more important. That's how it starts. He made heaven and earth. He's already important. We have to consider that faith is the crisis of your subtraction, of your task of developing yourself into somebody that must insist on his way, insist on her way. How many relationship issues that you get into are because you insist on your way? Have you realized what faith in Christ means? It means you don't have that ground of insistence. You've been given a different set of marching orders, and love precludes that. Are you still about making yourself who you want to be, or are you about being made by Christ into what he wants you to be? Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we are grateful. Be merciful to us. Keep us from being too insistent. Protecting the edges of our stuff. The worldly kingdoms that we try to make. We'd ask that you would liberate us from ourselves and give us to your son. That his judgment, his power, and his glory will settle everything on the last day and we can trust him to do it. That we are just here to be about his work. In your son's name, amen.